since we've entered this uh, uh, COVID-19 roller coaster, the news and the internet have been full of article after article and post after post about shortages brought on by panic shopping. For instance, we have the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. That's what our kids are going to call it when they're old codgers like I am now. Oh, I remember the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. The suppliers don't seem to be able to roll out enough of the stuff to wipe out the demand. I was kind of hoping I wouldn't actually hear groans this time, but anyway. (laughs) I hear that people are even mugging the bears in the woods to get their Charmin. And then we have all the hand sanitizer being completely cleaned out. It just seems to be evaporating in the thin air. But, but there's another commodity, a much more important commodity that seems to be equally in short supply. And having this item in short supply is a serious problem. So let me ask you a question. How, how full are your joy reserves? Are you all stocked up on joy? Have you enough joy to get you through whatever it is that you're going through? It seems to me that as people's panic pool flows over, overflows with, with all the panic and the stress of today, their joy reserves have dried up. If we're not stressed out, overwhelmed, or worried, many of us are just plain depressed. And that seems to be the new normal. And there's that phrase, everyone's talking about the new normal. Well, to my way of thinking, things are too new for them to, to be the new normal. So what's normal now may not be normal in a few weeks or in a month or a year from now. In other words, there is no new normal yet, just a new abnormal. But what we need to remember is that this is not the first time the human race has faced stuff like this. Not by a long shot. You know, we have gone through things like this before, and soon our new normal will be old news and replaced with something else. And we're going to get our bearings on the new landscape of our future. Until then, there will be challenge. This is when I would like to have my old mic back, but anyway. Until then, there will be challenge, change and challenge and stress and mess and fear and tears, and we will be fighting a war against an invisible enemy. Now, as I look around our present landscape, I find it increasingly difficult to find joy. I find it increasingly difficult to find joy in in others and even in myself. Although, I, I promise you, I'm working at it. I'm trying. I'm trying and I'm making progress to try to refill my joy reserve. Today, as we continue our cultivating series based on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we're going to be looking at joy. We're going to be talking about why we should still have it and how we can get it back 
and how we can prevent it from leaving again. But before we do, perhaps we need to define what joy is. Or in this case, what joy isn't. First of all, joy is not happiness. It's, it's not the same as happiness. You know, the Bible mentions joy or rejoicing 330 times. Happiness, only 26 times. So, so joy and happiness are two different things, although they have some similarities, obviously. Now, happiness is something that comes and goes because it's based on circumstances. Anyone can find happiness. But anyone can lose it as well. I might wake up feeling happy. However, there's no guarantee that I'm going to go to bed happy. And that happiness will remain with me through the day. Things happen. Problems arise. If you aren't feeling particularly happy these days, I get it. But this brings us to the second point about joy. Joy isn't dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on circumstances. Unlike happiness, joy comes from an inward reality, not outward circumstances. Joy can, therefore, be a consistent constant in our lives even when life is difficult real joy is rooted far deeper than the temporary things of life so difficult circumstances can't touch it can't get near it in fact difficult circumstances can even increase our joy did you hear that difficult circumstances can increase our joy I'll let you ponder that for a moment, and we'll come back to that. Now that we define what joy is, and let's look at what joy is. First of all, joy is an indicator. It's a gauge. It's a barometer that measures our spiritual condition. You know, just like all the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, they, they are things that show how well we're doing spiritually. If we are growing and abiding in our relationship with Jesus, our joy factor will be present and growing as well. If joy is consistently absent from our lives, though, there's something terribly wrong. Somehow we've lost our focus or forgotten our first love. A joyless Christian is a Christian in trouble. Secondly, joy is a byproduct. You know, it's the result of something else. Again, I I remember we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I keep coming back to this point, but, but I must because it takes a long time for us to understand and to surrender to how God's grace operates in our lives. Fruit comes as a byproduct of a Spirit filled life. You know, this is important to remember because you can never capture joy in your life. By focusing on it. It's never going to happen. It'll just probably make you depressed. Joy is a consequence of something else in our life. It's the result of abiding in Christ. It it comes into our lives as we give ourselves to Christ. And and grow in our dependence. And our obedience. 
it comes as we surrender to the Holy Spirit's reshaping, empowering influence. So how do you find your joy? First of all, you seek God in salvation. You must find Yahweh before you find joy. Remember, joy can't be found by looking for it. It's a byproduct of a relationship with Yahweh. God is the only source of joy. In Isaiah 61.10 we read, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Isaiah delights and he rejoices in God because God has saved him. And and David in Psalm 51.12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David connects joy with salvation, but notice whose salvation he's talking about. It's Yahweh's salvation given to David. God is the source of salvation, and because he's the source of salvation, he's also the source of joy. Now look at these passages and see if you can figure out what they have in common. What's, what's the common denominator in all of these passages? First Luke chapter 1, verse 44. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Go ahead and ask, talk to each other about who that might be talking. Luke two ten. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Luke twenty four fifty two. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. What do all of these verses have in common? They all, they all have to do with Jesus. The first verse happens when, when Mary's visiting Elizabeth and somehow the unborn John senses the presence of Jesus in Mary's womb and he jumps for joy. And then Elizabeth said, can you go sleep in the other room, please? In the second verse, we have the angel's announcement of the shepherds at the birth of Jesus. In the last verse, we have the result of Jesus' ascension into heaven after his resurrection. Obviously, joy is associated with Jesus. Discovering Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, knowing Jesus, following Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and living for Jesus is our source of joy. Why? Because it's through our connection and our surrender to Jesus that we experience the joy of God's salvation. What does Jesus claim about himself in John 14, 6? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't find joy without finding Yahweh, and you can't find Yahweh without first coming to the one who's the way to the Father. Who is Yahweh? Peter puts it this way in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Exclusive. Christians aren't exclusive because they're narrow-minded and bigoted. They're exclusive because Jesus is 
exclusive. And he's exclusive because he's the only way to the Father. And he doesn't want anyone else to miss coming to the Father. So he has to make the truth claim that is the truth claim of all time. That he is the only way. He is the only name. Because he died for our sins. Because he made a way when there was no way. You cannot find joy without first finding God, and you can't find God without first finding salvation in Christ. In Romans 15, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32, and he writes, Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Why did Paul tell the Gentile Christians in Rome to rejoice? Why did he have them tell them that, you know, to be joyful? What did they have to be joyful about? Well, look at the quote again from Deuteronomy 32. Gentiles are to rejoice. They're to have joy with his people. The joy comes from now being included with God's people, Israel. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes our position outside of Christ. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Our reality before coming to Christ, before we were saved, was that we were alienated in every possible way. We were separated from Christ, excluded from God's people, outside of God's saving relationship, without hope and without God in this world, practically, relationally, socially speaking. In case you're wondering, that's not a good position to be in. There's not a lot of room for hope or joy in that position. But then Paul continues with the next verse, but now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household. Those who were far away have been brought near. Those who were on the outside have been brought in. Those who were excluded from the family are now family members. A little bit further down in verse 22, Paul adds that we've also become the place of God's dwelling through his Holy Spirit. Do you realize the transformation of identity, of security, of peace, of hope that salvation brings? Or has it become old news to you? It is completely and utterly transformational. It's the transformation, transformation of our future, not, not only for today or tomorrow or until the next verse, virus, I should say, or, or the next stark stock market downturn. This transformation is permanent. In fact, it's guaranteed by the promises of God, and it's eternal and it's the consequences, and that's why our joy can be deep. That's why it's untouchable by circumstances. In this shifting, changing, overwhelming world of uncertainty, this is a really good reason to have joy. But, but there's more to joy than just finding God's salvation. Although this one thing should be enough to jumpstart our joy without having to go any further. 
But having said that, we also have the joy that comes from seeking God in our situation. Regardless of anything else that's going on, regardless of how you feel right now, our reality is that God is with us. Our God loves us. God is our strength if we lean on him. He is our comfort if we go to him. Unfortunately, we don't usually see God as our comfort or our strength until we're in a situation that requires his help. And in case you're wondering, we all need his help right now. So this puts us in a good position to experience God as our comfort and our strength. If you're not seeking him as your comfort and strength right now, what are you waiting for? In James 1, beginning in verse 2, James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whatever you fa- whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. James tells us to consider it pure joy, pure joy, whenever we face any trials. Notice that it's pure joy. It isn't watered-down joy. You know, this isn't some joy substitute. This isn't joy light. This isn't dollar store joy. This is the real thing. It's pure joy. How can we consider problems and troubles as pure joy? Because God is with us and he is our strength and our comfort. More to the point, God will use the trouble in our lives to bring us to maturity. Now now think back to the earlier statement I made. I said that real joy is rooted far deeper than the temporary things of our lives. So difficult circumstances can't touch our joy. In fact, difficult circumstances can even increase our joy. How does that work? Again, what is the fruit of the Spirit? What does the growth of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control indicate in our lives? It indicates maturity, right? A mature Christian is a fruitful Christian. A fruitful Christian is a mature Christian. The more maturity we have, the more fruit we will bear. So think about it. Let's put these elements together. If God uses difficulty and troubles to bring maturity, it must also be true that troubles and difficulties will also increase our capacity to bear the fruit of the Spirit, including joy. To put it another way, because God uses the anxious, difficult times in our lives to strengthen our faith and to bring us closer to Him, anxious, difficult times have the potential to increase our joy. Are you hearing me? That's why Paul in Philippians 4, 4 was able to declare, Be full of joy in the Lord always. Not just before the virus came. Always. I'll say it again. Be full of joy. 
Nothing, not even pain and problems, not even stress and uncertainty can take away the joy that we have in the Lord. I have everything I need for joy, Robert Reed said. It's Robert. His hands are twisted. His feet are useless. He can't bathe himself. He he can't feed himself. He can't brush his teeth. He can't comb his hair. He can't put on his underwear. Strips of Velcro hold his shirt together. His speech drags and slurs. Robert has cerebral palsy. The disease keeps him from driving a car, from riding a bike, going for a walk. But it didn't keep him from graduating from high school or attending Abilene Christian University, from which he graduated with a degree in Latin. I would have probably picked something else, but that doesn't matter. That's what he wanted to do. Having cerebral palsy didn't keep him from teaching at St. Louis Junior College or from venturing overseas on five mission trips. Robert's disease didn't prevent him from being a missionary in Portugal. He moved to Lisbon alone in 1972. There he rented a hotel room and began studying Portuguese. He he didn't even know it when he moved there. He, He found a restaurant owner who would feed him after the evening dinner rush. And he found a tutor that would instruct him in Portuguese. Then he stationed himself daily in a park where he distributed brochures about Christ. And within six years, he had led 70 people to the Lord. One of whom became his wife, Rosa. Now, I, I, I tell you this story not to make you feel bad about your own accomplishments. This is a pretty humbling story after all. No, the point is that Our joy is untouchable when we come to the same conclusion that Robert did. When we realize that in God we possess everything that we need for joy, we are in a place where joy is untouchable. And our lives become ruled by opportunities where others only see fears and limitations. If you want joy, first you must find God in salvation. Then you must find God in your situation. Next, you'll grow in your joy as you're supplied by Christ. In John 15, Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remained in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus tells his disciples to remain in him. They're to live in Jesus. They're to abide in Jesus. Jesus is to be their supplier. Jesus is to be their source. He is the vine and they are the branches. They're to be connected to him. 
And without that connection, without that supply, without that relationship, there is no life, there is no fruit. We've already talked about this quite a bit in the series. But what does Jesus tell them? Why does he tell them all this? What's the point? It's so that their joy, his joy can be in them. And that their joy can be complete. You ever had this prayer? Lord, I don't feel like much joy is in my life right now. Can you let me know your joy in me? You ever prayed that prayer? Maybe that's a good prayer to pray today as a family. It's so that our joy will be complete. You know, it's so that our joy can be perfected. Jesus isn't just interested in providing us with enough joy to keep us from slitting our wrists and calling it a day. He wants to make our joy complete. He wants to completely fill our joy reserves. He wants the joy to be perfected. He wants us to have pure joy. And that's what Jesus desires for you and for me. But, but our joy can't be complete unless we're connected to Christ and receiving his continuous life-giving, fruit-bearing flow through the Holy Spirit. Okay, but how do we abide? That's that word, abide. How do we abide in Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 7, if you remain in me and my word remains in you, we remain in Christ through taking God's word into our lives. Which means it's not only to, to study it or to read it, but to meditate on it and to delight in it and obey it. We remain in Christ by seeking his will and by, by keeping our prayer life active. You know, if you want joy, check your supplier. Who or what are you looking to for joy, for your joy? Some competitors may offer short-term superficial joy. But only Christ gives us true, lasting, pure joy. By no substitutes. You can only have true joy if you remain, abide, live in, and are supplied by Jesus. But being supplied by Jesus isn't enough. That's not enough. As Christians... We never can be content with just taking. Our joy will never be complete if we are not concerned about, if we're only concerned about receiving joy. You know, think of the Christian life like it's a sponge. A sponge can only take in so much before it reaches its point of saturation. And the only way a sponge can receive more is by being squeezed. In the same way, our joy will not be complete if we keep it to ourselves. We must give it to others. Which brings us to the next point of how we grow in joy. We have to see past self. We have to see past ourselves. We need to invest our lives in in one another and, and serve one another. And doing that becomes a catalyst for joy in one another. 
1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. Paul tells the Christians in Thessalonica, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. 1 Thessalonians 3, 9, he says, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? 1 Timothy 1, 4, Paul tells Timothy, Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Philemon, verse 7. Paul tells Philemon, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Now, obviously, the people Paul brought into and nurtured in Christ uh, were a great source of joy for him. And Paul invests himself in the lives of others, and joy is the byproduct because in Paul... Because of Paul's love, his example, and his message, people were touched by the gospel, and and people were growing in their relationship with Christ, and people were becoming part of a community of love and service and encouragement, empowered by Christ. If someone were to ask you the greatest joy you've had in your life, you know, what would you say? Maybe the day you were married, maybe the day your first baby came into the world, your first child. It could be all kinds of things, but there's no greater joy that I've experienced in my life than the joy of bringing someone to Christ. The joy of connecting someone to Christ. The joy of seeing someone grow and mature in Christ. That's, that's everything. That's why I do what I do. And when I when I'm, I'm not in that, pretty much everything else is, isn't as much joy. There isn't as much joy in everything else that I'm doing. You know, if we want to grow our joy, we must, we must take our eyes off ourselves and invest in the lives of others. <clears throat> we must see ourselves as part of God's plan and purpose. The psychologist Abram Maslow once said, I have found that every person who was sincerely happy, radiantly alive was living for a purpose or a cause beyond himself. To grow in joy, we must look beyond ourselves. Joy joy can't be had by chasing after it. You must seek after God and serve others, and it comes to you. Let's look at a couple of killers of joy, and then we'll close. Here are some things that steal joy from our lives. First of all, wrongdoing. The first killer of joy is sin. Let's go back to the words of David in Psalm 51:12. David says, "Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me." You know, Psalm 51 is famous. It's it's the psalm that David wrote after he was confronted with his sin that he committed against Bathsheba. If you read through this psalm, you will quickly see David's aware of his sin, acutely aware of his sin. You'll also see his desperation. 
You know, he describes his bones as crushed. He declares a need for God to create in him a clean heart because he can't do it on his own. Notice also that the joy of salvation is gone in him. He's crying out that that it needs to be restored. The joy of salvation needs to be restored. He's not saying his salvation was gone, but the joy of salvation was gone. That's easy for us to understand, isn't it? If we receive joy by being in God's presence, and if unconfessed sin separates us from God, then there's no joy in our lives when we're being ruled by sin. Not because it's not available, but because we've cut ourselves off from it. So if you are in Christ and you have lost your joy somewhere, you you need to examine your life. And, And you need to see if sin is blocking God's presence and your joy. And be aware that allowing fear and doubt and anxiety to rule in your life is sin. You need to hear that. Allowing fear, doubt, and anxiety to rule in your life is indeed sin. Initially, initially, change and uncertainty can bring a fearful, anxious response. That's not sin. That's being human. That's trying to deal with change. Uncertainty brings those responses to us, and it's unavoidable. But allowing fear and anxiety to give birth to panic and doubt is sin because it shows that your life is being ruled by someone other than your relationship with Christ. Moving on to our next joy killer, being worn out. Many of you are at home right now. Some of you might be bored, more bored than busy. Others of you in healthcare or essential services might be very busy indeed. But all of us are more likely and most likely tired. I'm tired. We're all suffering from the fatigue that comes from the mental overload of information, overload of constant change that we're trying to cope with. And you can't have joy if you're running on empty. Being worn out brings woes. Isaiah 43, verse 30 and 31. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary, they will walk and not be faint. Everyone gets tired. Getting physically and emotionally tired happens to all of us. We'll go, all go through periods of busyness that challenge us, but the real problem is that when we grow tired spiritually, that's the real problem, when we grow tired spiritually. You know, sometimes our physical and emotional tiredness trickles down into our spiritual t- tiredness. In, in fact, if you're anything like me, when things get busy usually the first thing that suffers is my spiritual life. And and if it continues for any length of time, it can be devastating. Isaiah tells us that our hope in the Lord 
It's our hope in the Lord that renews our strength. So if your relationship with God suffers, so does your source of renewal. All I know is that I've experienced this myself. Now, I've gone through a few times in my ministry that Sheila calls, not so affectionately, my blue period. Thankfully, there's been few and far between. But, but last year, with the flood and the funerals and the friends that I was losing, I came close to a blue period, closer than I have been in years. I, I can give you the factors that contributed to my spiritual tiredness. You know, clearly there's stressors, but ultimately it happens when I allow my busyness to interrupt my abiding in Christ. Cut off from the vine, the fruit dries up. After a while, I have nothing to give, and I just want people to leave me alone more than I normally do. I just basically drag myself around in a pathetic pity party. Joy left town without a forwarding address. I was ghosted by Joy. That's for all the hip people out there in the audience. You know, I had no hope of renewing my strength until God broke through and reminded me of his love and his grace and his hope and his strength. And all of that began to flow back into my life. Don't let this happen to you, particularly now. You need your joy reserve topped up. Watch your busyness. Look at how tired and stressed you are. Consider how much time you're spending plugged into God's word. Praying to God. Look at how stressed you are, and, 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 the more, and, and the more stressed you are, think of the more time you need to recharge. And take it seriously. The last joy killer is waiting for mountains. First Kings 19, we have the account of Elijah meeting with God on Mount Horeb. I, I love this passage. Starting in verse 11, we read, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore through the mount, or tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after wind, the wind, there was an earthquake, but, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came, a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, Elijah had gone through one of the greatest mountaintop moments ever. He had stood on a mountain and he had been God's amazing instrument. He had clearly shown God's reality to the people of Israel. He had beaten 450 prophets of Baal into the ground. He had humiliated them. This was the defining moment for Elijah. It was his crowning achievement. It was God and him against the world. But immediately after this, he ran for the valley and fell into a deep depression. During this time, God ministers to him and then meets with him. But, but I want, what I want you to notice is that God is teaching Elijah something very important in this passage. God's telling Elijah to go out on the mountain and wait for his presence. 
Then we have these strange situations taking place. The great wind and the earthquake and the fire. And Elijah is standing there waiting for God's presence. But God doesn't show up in any of these powerful, obvious ways. Ways that were associated with him appearing at the giving of the law. But he wasn't in those. He was in the gentle whisper. What's God trying to teach Elijah? Well, God's seen so many, or Elijah's seen so many things. It's, 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 he's done so many amazing things in the power of God. It's easy for him to think that God is only in the big stuff. That's where God shows up, in the big stuff. So Elijah starts to think that if nothing big is happening, God wasn't working. God then comes to him and corrects his misconception. Here's the point. You're never more at risk of losing your joy when you have just come off the mountain. You know, it happened to Elijah, and it can certainly happen to you, and I as well. As a matter of fact, I found repeatedly that spiritual highs easily turned into spiritual lows because we connect our joy to an event rather than our relationship with God. You know, it, it happened to me after coming back from Thailand this last time. So, so the point is, don't miss his gentle whisper because you're looking for a spiritual earthquake. Don't base your spiritual well-being on big events. Spiritual earthquakes are exciting, but they're few and far between, and they will not sustain your joy. You need the constant presence of the gentle whisper. You need it. You need to look for and see God in the small stuff. For joy to grow, we need daily senses of his presence. A joyful life is possible, even in a world of fear and financial fallout brought on by a pandemic. Never thought I'd have to write that sentence. But it's only possible if we're in Christ. It's only possible if we've trusted Jesus with our salvation in our lives. It's only possible if we continue to remain in Christ's presence and take our eyes off ourselves so that we can spread joy to others. It is only possible if we guard our hearts and we manage our fatigue and we seek after the still, small voice. Seek it until you can hear it clearly over the panic. May we make these words of David our continuous prayer. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me.